news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Books with Hooks. I am your co-host, Carly Waters, and we have Cece Lira with us, and Cece is going to kick us off with the first query. Dear Cece, 17-year-old Delilah Winters is lost. Her father is dead and buried, but his death has unearthed his shameful infidelity. Delilah was raised to follow the rules laid out by her church and to be pure and chaste. Now she's unsure what to believe. While grieving daddy's death and coming to terms with his hypocrisy, she falls prey to the amorous advances of Pastor Eric. Pastor Eric is young and handsome. All of the girls at Trinity Baptist Christian Academy swoon when they see him. Delilah is no exception. Never in her wildest dreams did she think that Pastor Eric would be attracted to her. It's far too easy to slip into sins of the flesh with Eric, despite everything that she has ever been taught. Mere weeks into her affair, she wakes up with the worst nausea and vomiting that she's ever experienced. During a visit to the emergency room, under the flickering light of an ultrasound screen, she hears her unborn baby's heartbeat for the first time. Delilah's mother is already grieving the loss of her adulterous husband. She can't handle the additional shame of having a pregnant teenage daughter. She kicks Delilah out 
and forbids her from ever returning home. Delilah has nowhere to go and no one to turn to except for Pastor Eric and his perfect wife, Cassidy. It quickly becomes apparent to Delilah that Eric and Cassidy are not the happy family that they pretend to be. She is forced to make a choice. Should she give her baby to Cassidy and Eric in exchange for the roof over her head and the preservation of her own future, or try to raise a baby at 17 entirely on her own? Throughout her struggle, she learns what it means to choose for herself. What Could Go Wrong is a 110,000 contemporary women's fiction told via Delilah's first-person narrative that explores one teenager's struggle when she is groomed and impregnated by a man that she should have been able to trust, and her realization that she wants more from her life than her oppressive upbringing would ever allow. It will appeal to fans of My Dark Vanessa and God Save the Girls, with its dark emotional drama centered around a teenage girl groomed by an older man, and its exploration of contemporary issues with purity culture. The criticism of corruption and sex abuse in religious institutions may also appeal to fans of contemporary documents, such as The Secrets of Hillsong and God Forbid. When I'm not writing, I spend my time working as an audiologist for a local hospital, where I have the privilege of meeting people from all different walks of life. I grew up and still live in a rural and religious area of upstate New York, which is full of schools, just like Delilah's private Christian school. I drew upon my own childhood experiences of attending a Baptist church, my interactions throughout my life with deeply religious families, friends and neighbors, and my struggles with hypermesis gravidarum during my three pregnancies. I have loved writing since I was a child, and it has always been my dream to write a novel that others would someday read and enjoy. I know that you are seeking novels which feature power dynamics and societal dysfunction, and I feel that my novel offers heaping doses of both. I hope you will consider my submission, and I look forward to hearing from you. This was not signed to protect confidentiality. Thank you so much, Cece. So tell us the word count on that query letter and what you thought. All right, so this one came in at 581 words. It is quite long. You know, if you're a fan of the podcast, if you listen to us, go on about word counts and all that sort of thing. This is on the longer side, and I don't think it needs to be that long. I kind of have proof to offer, although proof might not be the right word, because I was able to rewrite it. This happens very rarely on the podcast. I'm sure many people are wondering, why don't you just rewrite all of them? It's not even an issue of time, although time might also be an issue if I were able to do it. It's because I don't necessarily have all the plot points in a story to be able to put together a cohesive narrative. And in this case, I did, because the overwriting was just very clear. So for our Kofi subscribers, you will be able to go in and see the rewritten version, which is now sitting at 269 words. And of course, to the writer, it's up to you whether you follow this new version or not. And it's just a framework for you to have like a shorter version that you can then change and edit and tweak in whatever way you want. But let's talk about points in the query letter. I think that you should move the paragraph with all the metadata, the comps, the word count, all that good stuff all the way to the first paragraph, right? It's the hook, book, cook formula that Carly always talks about. Why? That way, when I'm reading about the plot, I know what tone to expect. If you had said this was a thriller, for example, I would be expecting, I guess, eerie vibes. And if I read things like Cassidy and Eric are not the happy family that they pretend to be, I would have been like, ooh, scary, because thriller. But if so, if you tell us women's fiction, I'm expecting a tone and a treatment that's a little bit different. So that's something to think about. Questions I had were, does she know the babies is Eric's? 
And by she, I mean Cassidy. Like, does Cassidy, the wife, know? Because whether she knows or not changes the dynamic of her, of the protagonist living with them. I'm also not clear on whether the entire culture knows. Like, do the other church members know? And I really wanted to know that. It would also be great if there were like a callback to the father's death or his secret. So for example, does she find out that Eric enabled her father's infidelity? Because that would honor the web effect. And it's really nice to see all the plot points coming together in the story. Um, so yeah, my big picture note is this needs to be much shorter. I mean, it seems very interesting. So thank you for sharing. Well, that is lucky to this author that Cece rewrote the whole thing for you. So yeah, any longtime listener knows that we never do that. I think I've done that once, maybe. So yes, very rare. And all the Kofi subscribers, obviously, this is great for you guys, because you guys get to log in, read that amazing, amazing work as well. Okay, thank you, Cece. So what happens in those opening pages? So our protagonist is outside of Planned Parenthood with other people from her health class and other adults as well, and they're protesting abortion. And they have signs that read, abortion is murder and other things. And a woman is coming in and she's being escorted by a Planned Parenthood professional. And they tell her, don't do this. And they try to discourage her from getting an abortion, even though just between us, they have no idea what she's actually at Planned Parenthood doing. Yeah. And then a, a classmate interrupts the teacher and points out that, hey, maybe Planned Parenthood is not just about abortions. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And the protagonist just listens and watches. And the teacher, you know, shuts it down essentially. And it's very, very clear. This is something they do all the time and they are big believers in it. Thank you, Cece. And what did you think of those pages? Okay. I want to begin by saying that you are not a script writer. I'm talking to the writer here. Dear lovely writer, you are not a script writer. You are a novelist, unless you are also a script writer. But for the purposes of this, you are not a script writer. There's layers missing. There's emotionality and interiority missing. We are getting very clear plot. Like the scene is so clear. Who is speaking is clear. What's going on in terms of movement. The, the visuals are so vivid. So you did a really great job there. But I don't know what she's thinking and feeling. And I really wanted to know, we're getting a lot of things like she narrowed her eyes and she shakes her head and that's stuff that a camera can capture. I want to know what's going on inside her psyche, so her interiority, and I want to know what's going on inside her heart, so her emotionality. And when writing a novel, like remember, like interiority is all about depth, detail, and deception. So what would depth look like? Depth would look like, does she ever have a moment where she wonders what happens to the fetus's souls? She considers them to be babies. Would she ever have a moment where she is conflicted by what she's doing? Would she ever have a moment where she thinks back to a story she heard of a girl in her class? Like that's the depth. The detail, it's it could be something like when the girl from her class approaches to kind of question the teacher, she's holding a sign that has a psalm that's a Bible verse that the protagonist is unfamiliar with. A detail would be her interiority telling us, and that is so rare because she knows her Bible so well, you know, in her head. That's a detail. That's a character detail. And deception would be, of course, if there was something that she wasn't showing. And I am a big believer in there are always things we're not showing. And interesting scenes begin with moments in which the protagonist is not being fully honest. So given her age and given the religious aspect of this, I do feel that it would make a lot of sense to have that extra layer of deception. I'm not saying she should be against what she's doing, because I get that that's not where her head is at in the beginning of the story. But conflict, right? Like conflict in some way, even if it's in the, the way they're treating the people, or maybe it's even the inverse. Maybe she thinks they should be doing more 
right? And she's not she's not comfortable saying. I guess my point is there should be more layers to this. And that's a good thing at the end of the day because it just means we want to hear more about your story. I would also add as a final note that maybe put a content note in the in your query letter. There's nothing graphic or anything like that. And I do think this is an important subject that should be written about. I just wonder whether, you know, the signs with the abortion is murder and the kind of like harassing of the poor woman who's walking in. I wonder if that needs a content note. So that's something to think about too. Thank you so much, Cece. And now I'm going to read my query letter. Dear Carly, I'm a huge fan of the shit no one tells you about writing. I listen every week and I'm so grateful for you, Bianca and Cece. You are the anti-gatekeepers pulling back the curtain on what can feel at times an impenetrable industry and sharing with us the knowledge we need to put our best feet forward. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your generosity. I'm excited to share with you the first five pages of Please Relieve Me. My 70,000 word novel, a work of upmarket fiction, a coming of age story that follows Annie from the first day of high school to a few years post-college. This novel would appeal to fans of Meg Mason's Sorrow and Bliss and Sally Rooney's incisive portraits of young adulthood. For as long as Annie can remember, she's known something was different about her. Her mind has always been a tangled mess of obsessive thoughts and anxieties. To cope, she has carefully, methodically built a life that prioritizes safety and order. Then she starts high school and everything goes to shit. As Annie weaves her way to adulthood, she struggles with her complicated mental health. As she navigates romantic relationships, friendships, going away to college, her first job, she discovers new ways of getting the relief she's always craved. One of these is Owen, a fellow high school student with baggage of his own, with whom she begins a passionate, tumultuous, decade-long love story. But as her coping strategies become increasingly destructive, she has to choose between her perpetual attempts at escaping the briar patch that is her brain, or finally accepting her situation, which might actually get her what she's always wanted, peace. I'm a full-time freelancer and editor. I've written more than 15 nonfiction children's books for Redacted. My writing has also appeared in and on Redacted. Two of my short stories were semi-finalists in American Short Fiction Contests, and one reviewer said of my work, seriously beautiful writing, effective, lyrical, yet not over the top. The first reading was just mostly magic. You can see more of my work on my website, Redacted. Thank you so much for your time and consideration. May I send you the full manuscript, sincerely, Redacted. Thank you, Carly. So what was the word count on that? And what did you think of the query letter? So the word count on this is 413 words. Okay, well, you know, I do always love a little bit of flattery in the morning. So, you know, I do love the wonderful things you guys say about me. I'm not going to lie. And the wonderful things you say about the podcast, it keeps us going. So thank you so much for that. Okay, so in terms of the title, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I don't like this title. When I think of the word relieve, I think of the bathroom. And so I'm no... (laughs) Cece almost spit her coffee all over her keyboard. (laughs) So maybe that's just me. Maybe I have two small kids and a dog and that's what I think of when I think of relief. So I'm just planting that seed. Not my favorite title. And I'm still laughing because Cece's laughing. But I think there's a lot of other options out there, right? And so sometimes when you guys send these in and we say them out loud, it starts to all click, you know, how things you know, sound to other people when they're said out loud. So that is my thought on that. So a couple things here. When something is a coming of age story, or it starts in the POV of somebody who is a child at the time, and they will become an adult later on, it's almost imperative that you always start with the adult POV, establishing a frame narrative, just making sure it's very clear to us why this book is for adults and not children. And so for this one, 
to me, it really felt like we were focusing on the YA element of it. And so I'm trying to figure out what about this makes it upmarket. So is it the fact that it's coming of age? We think that it's an upmarket fiction. Why is it not literary fiction? Because it sounds like it could be on the quieter side of things. So I'm really just trying to figure out these kind of market segmentation questions. And I know you guys just are trying your best with the query letter and that's all that we ask. But my brain is kind of trying to connect the dots of like, who is this for? So that's very important to me. I would really just suggest that you're focusing on why is this for adults and why is it upmarket? So really just making that, that hook pretty clear. I felt like you were bearing the hook. I felt like the passionate, tumultuous, decade-long love story, to me, that really felt like the hook obviously set up against her mental health challenges, right? So, you know, how is that kind of getting in the way of, of what she's wanting, right? Which is maybe this love affair. So that to me would be the central hook. It sounds pretty young to me right now. I don't know how this is potentially for adults because it's very much focused on her youth. So I'm just flagging that. And a frame narrative would would help solve this because if we're an adult looking back is what I mean by frame narrative, then we're kind of understanding like, oh, there's a reason we need to go back in time and revisit this period in this character's life. One thing I will also say on the query letter is you quote a reviewer of your work and it is a lovely bit of feedback. I just, just want everybody to understand that Well, again, I think this is lovely and I don't think you need to take it out per se. I just want to remind everybody that when I am reading a query letter, nobody else's opinions sway my opinion. My opinion is my opinion. And so again, while this is lovely that somebody said that, and again, other agents might feel differently, I am not swayed by anybody else's opinion. So when people say like, you know, they were nominated for this award or won this award or have this blurb or worked with so-and-so. I think that's lovely. I think that tells me that you take your career really seriously and you are committed to this and you're going through all these steps to ensure that you're going to have a long career. But just a reminder that if you don't have these things, that's okay. And if you do have these things, I am still going to make my own opinion on this. And so it's not swaying me, if that makes sense. Awesome, Carly. So let us know what was on those opening pages and what you thought about them. Okay, so we start with a prologue. It feels a bit like a letter or a frame narrative kind of explaining something that happened in this character's life earlier on. And like I had hoped in the query letter, this would be a frame narrative to set us up to why we're going back. So there's two pages of the prologue. And then we start with chapter one, 10 years earlier. Again, this is a frame narrative, which is great. We should have all this in the query letter. So we get into our 10 years earlier and it is the first day of school for our main character. I think we get the sense, you know, she's a freshman, just, you know, grade nine, um, if you're in other um, schooling systems. So we get the sense, you know, she's quite young, right? So this is like a 14-ish year old. And her doctor has kind of given her some tips to handle the first day. So she says she picked out her outfit, you know, has interacted with it. She knows exactly all the steps she needs to go through. She knows her class schedule. Um, So she gets there on the first day and she's kind of going through all of these motions. She has a friend that's with her at school. And then she feels kind of an OCD moment coming on. And so she, her body is tensing and she's like feeling this feeling kind of going through her body and she starts um, squeezing her fingers, um, you know, pinky ring, middle pointer thumb and going through the repetition of this compulsion. So that's where we end. And what did you think of the execution? All right. So like I was kind of alluding to in my overview, I'm really glad this is a frame narrative. I'm glad we are kind of in the present-ish looking back. I think that's great. It is called a prologue. We don't know when this prologue takes place, but then we find out later, oh, it's 10 years prior. So we know that if she's kind of 14 in those pages, she's probably 24-ish. Now, it sounds a bit like a letter. It still sounds very teenage angst-ish to me. And there's a lot of telling, a lot of telling in this. 
there was a lot of the description of how the character's body felt because she's kind of saying, hey, something really big happened to me. That's why we're going back in time these 10 years to revisit this. And she's describing what her skin feels like, like bugs crawling on me and my heart is beating fast. And to me, it just felt like a lot of telling. And I know this is to kind of set us up to understand some of these compulsions, but I don't think we have to do quite so much of it. I think it's just trying to make sure that every word counts. And so sometimes I feel when writers repeat themselves, it, to me, it feels like they're trying to say the same thing a different way. And I know the writer thinks this is coming off as emphasis in terms of repetition, but to me, it's coming off as this writer is not confident in their choices. And so they need to say something three, four, five times when really what they need to do is get the red pen out and figure out the best time that they said that and keep it that time. And that's really what I think this person needs to do because we get it, you know, it's one of those like, okay, we understand. Let's like move on and advance the plot here. So I don't think this prologue is doing its job in the sense of framing this, right? Set is saying, I'm an adult now. We're looking back. Why are we going back? It's just a lot of feelings. And a prologue with a lot of feelings is pretty challenging to, to hook a reader. So that's one thing. And then we move into our chapter one, 10 years earlier. I really like the first line, which is, Annie had done everything that Dr. G said. She picked out her first day outfit two weeks before and quote unquote interacted with it every day until today. So I just like that it's something very intentional. We understand the doctor relationship. We understand it's the first day of school and it had been kind of two weeks leading up to it. And so lots of, lots of information conveyed in here. And I think that was a really, really great line. I'd like the other time that she talks about Dr. G, her doctor about desensitizing herself. So she's like going through the motions and she understands, you know, what's going to happen on that first day. So I really, I really like those pieces. One thing I was having trouble understanding was the internalization of all of this. It felt very looking back, right? Because we get the sense it's 10 years earlier. So this is this character telling it as an adult. And so it comes off a little bit distant. You know, she says two days before the first day, she stopped talking. She would nod or grunt, but she would no longer speak. Her parents, not sure what to do, carried on as normal, sneaking word glances at one another as she moved through the house like a sullen ghost. So it's third person, which feels pretty distant. And we don't really get this internalization of how she feels about this. Like, does she feel trapped in her body? How does she feel about not being able to speak, you know, um, you know, with all this anxiety and um, compulsive behaviors, you know, leading up to school. So it felt pretty distant to me, which was a little bit challenging, right? Because there are a lot of visceral in your body feelings, clearly that are coming up here. So that that to me is really interesting. And also the relationship with the friend. I just thought there's so much potential here. It's very much like, you know, the friend shows up and helps her, but there's no dialogue between them. So I'm really just wondering like what the entire structure of this book is. <laughs> is it really just this distant looking back on our life? Because I think that's just, I think it's just going to be a tough sell, unfortunately. Thank you, Carly. All right. Now we'll move on to a third query letter that we'll both critique and I will read that for us. Dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca. As a huge fan of Books with Hooks and Bianca's interviews, I want to thank you for helping authors everywhere, wherever they are on the path. I'm writing to present my upmarket suspense, The Healing Houses, complete at 100,000 words. As in Emma Klein's The Girls and Kate Elizabeth Russell's My Dark Vanessa, this debut explores the nature of charisma and how intelligent people can fall for powerful figures. This may also appeal to fans of Ashley Winstead's The Last Housewife for its suspense and unexpected turns. 
Elaine Montague paints houses, windowless houses tumbling through white water, houses with roots reaching into rocky earth, healing paintings. Five years in a cult called Om Brotherhood, then 10 years hiding from Michelle, its manipulative, charismatic leader, Elaine knows one sure thing. Seeing Michelle, even from a distance, could undo years of safeguarding against her dangerous obsession with him. Now living in Colorado, her fifth state in 10 years, she befriends Mary, a purported therapist who enables her to open, little by little, and recount some of her closely guarded past. Elaine is finally tiptoeing back into a normal life and has even secured a gallery when James, her ex-boyfriend from the cult, re-enters her life, needing help. When Elaine indeed finds herself face-to-face with Michelle, she must rebuild her emotional fortress. Believing Mary was helping her hide her whereabouts, she shockingly discovers Mary may not be who she says she is to keep her carefully built foundation from cracking, and her focus on her dream solo art show at a prestigious Denver gallery, Elaine must dredge up the gems of wisdom she learned from Michelle himself, gems that come with crippling memories but bring her closer to James. Some days, the only sure place to stand is at her easel. This dual timeline weaves together the 1970s cult experience with the 1980s present drama and was inspired by people close to me previously involved in cults, one who tragically died by suicide. While my business has been as a successful artist, I am also a longtime writer whose fiction and poetry have been published in such journals as Earth Daughters, Raven's Perch, and The Harbinger. I was rewarded an honorable mention by the Solace Awards Traveler's Tales, For my short story, The Bathroom, I participated in the Community of Writers, formerly Squaw Valley, Writers Conference, and worked with novelist Gail Tsukiyama. Thank you for your time and consideration. Attached, please find the first five pages of The Healing Houses. I'd be thrilled to send you the full manuscript. Best, Liz Collins. All right, now I will throw it to Carly to let us in on a little detail about this query letter that some savvy listeners, or some loyal listeners, I should say, might have already noticed. Yes, so this, if you haven't figured it out yet, is a resubmission. So I critiqued this one in the summertime. So not too long ago, you can go back and listen to that original one. And I have my original notes up and my notes from today. So this person took some of my feedback, incorporated it into the query letter. And now Cece and I are both critiquing this one. So we get some fresh eyes from Cece and then my eyes as well, which is who have seen this material before. So this is really interesting. So let's start with the word count. So we are at 439 words, and from there, we'll keep going. So I think there's been some definite improvements. So again, anybody listening, you maybe might remember that other one, but if not, we'll, we'll just kind of start fresh. So yeah, definitely a lot of improvements here. A couple of things I think are super interesting that this person kept it in, even though my note said to take it out. And again, very curious about the choices of that, of course. So the couple of things I wanted to point out is... There's a line that is super vague. And I wrote in there, this is a very vague line. And then the line remains. And I'm like, okay, this is a very intentional choice for this person to keep this in. So I don't know if this has a double meaning or something, again, that is very relevant to the actual subject of the book. And obviously, having not read the entire book, I don't know. But the very vague line is, keep her carefully built foundation from cracking. It's just a bit of a well-worn path in terms of people who have already used this phrasing. So it feels a little bit tired. 
I don't know if it's because this whole Elaine Montague paints houses bit and then the foundation in the houses and the cracking. I don't know. Again, I still feel like it's fake and I still feel like we should take it out. Haven't changed my mind on that one. There's a lot of things that I think are really, really good in terms of improvements. So we get a bit of a personal story here that the writer was able to share with us, which, you know, in terms of their understanding and research that they've done by talking with friends and family members that have gone through something similar to this as a jumping off point. So that is interesting information. Um, and I'm definitely, definitely glad that we have this. I also um, made a couple of notes about explaining where the book begins and making it very clear about, you know, why is it starting and the place that it's starting. So I think we, I think this person definitely gathered that type of information. So I think that is very helpful. I still don't know. And this is another thing that remains. I still don't entirely know why she wants to help the ex-boyfriend, James. That's one thing where I'm still not clear. You know, it says later on in the query, bring her closer to James. So it seems like she wants to be close with him again. So there is a bit of intentionality. So I did notice that word choice that maybe she had missed him or there, there's some sort of longing there or she's glad that he came back into her life. But he brings obviously the cult leader. So there is that to kind of contend with. So, yeah, I, I think I think we've made a lot of improvements. Cece, what did you think? So like Harley mentioned, I read this with fresh eyes. Yes, I'd heard her read it before, but it's always different for me when I digest something with my eyes versus with my ears. So one, I think there's a lot of unnecessary detail that's just upping your word count. Some of this includes a beautiful sentence, like the sentence about her painting the houses. So beautiful. Keep that for your fabulous writing. But like, we do not need that in the query letter. We don't need to know that Colorado is her fifth state in 10 years. Details like that, like it's just unnecessary. And I've marked those for our Kofi subscribers. Two, I don't know, and to Carly's point, what is at stake? Because according to the query letter, it's the foundation, which is in danger of cracking but I don't know what that means. And I worry there's no plot when someone does this in a query letter. Like, I'll just be totally honest. When I read this and the submission says literary, I go, okay, perhaps intentional. Perhaps it is a quiet novel. That is really hard. Quiet novels are really hard, but okay. But when I read Upmarket and this is being pitched as Upmarket, I go, we need more plot. We need exterior plot, you know, not interior plot which is not to be confused with what we need in the pages, because in the pages we do need interiority, but not these pages. I'm getting ahead of myself. And then three, I think you're leaking the tension when you say things like purported therapist and believing Mary was helping her hide. I would write the query letter with the tension in the moment. So she makes friends with Mary. And then later on, we get the reveal of Mary is not who she who she claims to be, you know, and how is Mary connected to this whole plot? I want to know that too. So for me, it's really those three things, like to, to echo what Carly's saying and also, I guess, to build off it. I it, It's interesting. I always think that that beautiful sentences are very much appreciated. I just think we could tighten this a little bit more. All right. So Carly, will you let us know what was in those opening pages? And again, this might be familiar to the people who've heard this before, but the opening is kind of similar. So we start with our main character, Elaine. She is painting in her cabin and also trying to meet the neighbor. So she's repeating to herself, like, my name's Elaine and I'm, you know, and I'm a painter. Just trying to make sure she's got her story straight for when she meets this neighbor who she thinks that she kind of saw and it's foggy out and they're in the mountains. And she's like, just trying to build up her strength and kind of courage to go say hi. So she makes her way up there and then the neighbor says are you real you look a little creepy standing there in the mist 
And then she kind of comes closer and says, you are real. You look like an apparition. And then she just stands there, our main character, and runs away back to her cabin and gets back to painting and talks about her cabin and her boxes. So very similar in terms of what happened last time. Cool beans. I guess this time I'll say what I thought about it and then we'll see whether we agree or not. It's always interesting when we disagree, I think. Okay. So I wasn't clear when this started whether she was practicing the lines because she legitimately like does not know who she is or because it's a lie. I guess I wasn't clear on whether there was some memory loss going on. The query letter didn't mention memory loss, but there are lines that say things like, I don't know things most people know. And I also thought to myself, well, maybe CC, that's just the cult, right? Like they brainwashed her. I, I don't know. But confusion is not good for me. I think curiosity is awesome. Not knowing when it's curiosity-based is awesome. Not knowing when it's confusion-based, it's not great. There's also a line that says, at first it was the fear of being found. Now, because the words just tell me. Meaning, is she not afraid anymore of being found? Because I thought that that was leaking the tension a little bit. The part where she finds that someone moved the boxes that she planted, specifically as a trap. Like that read thriller-esque vibes to me. And then after that, like that thread just disappeared, you know? And I thought that was really odd. It's just odd. Her behavior with the neighbor is incredibly odd, which I am guessing is intentional. And if so, hey, that's totally fine. But I don't get why. So, so the big picture takeaway for me is I don't think this is starting in the right spot. Tonally, it's very inconsistent. On the one hand, we have a protagonist who may or may not have memory issues, and that's like quiet, literary, you know, mental health, going inside your psyche. And then on the other hand, we have like a thriller-esque vibes of a possible break-in. And then we also have the quiet, introspective, artistic scene where she's painting. So it's just too many things in one. Often this speaks to a very talented person who has lots of ideas, and that is so great. But like, it's important, I think, to choose one thing and stick to it because, or else, like, think about it this way. You don't go to a bookstore and you're craving a thriller and then you don't want to get something else, right? And when you're craving, I guess, interior fiction, you're not you're not going to want to get something else. So that, that was my take. Carly, what do you think? That's super interesting. And I'm glad I went second because I think that helps frame how I feel about this. So I had written in my notes, because I had read an earlier draft of this, I have a very clear sense of it, as I kind of alluded to, this is essentially the same opening, but I know how this writer moved paragraphs around. And I think this was a little bit of like, let's adjust the jigsaw puzzle pieces, you know, let's move this paragraph up here and this paragraph down here. And so to me, that was just a sign of we're just trying to tinker with this on a very small level. And we're not like, you know, zooming out and getting this macro lens of like, is this working? And that's why I think we have these tone issues. That's why I think these have, we have these confusion issues is because I think we were just adjusting paragraphs when we really need to be taking a really hard look at how we're kind of setting up this character and the reader's expectation of what's going to happen to this character. Yeah, absolutely. So for our listener, for the writer, you know, we hope that this feedback has been helpful. We thank you for resubmitting. We don't often take resubmissions just because we try to get through as many query letters as possible, but sometimes it's important so that we can say, hey, this is how the progress is feeling for us. So we hope that was helpful. Thank you everyone for sharing your query letters today. We so appreciate it and we'll see you next week. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. 
They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky though to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's gonna be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're gonna have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is a member of the Women's Fiction Writers Association, a managing editor of a non-profit website, and a mother of three daughters and a 90-pound bouvier. She lives just outside of Toronto, Ontario. Burlington is her first novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Heather Dixon. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's exciting to have you here. I know, Heather, that you were like one of our earlier listeners to the podcast. Is that right? I feel like I've been listening since the beginning. I remember 
before Carly and Cece were co-hosts. I was listening. So yeah, this is very exciting for me. Wow. Yeah. Real, real diehard fan. I think I podcasted for about five or six months before Carly and Cece joined. And at that point, I remember being really excited when I hit the 100 download mark. So perhaps you were one of those people, Heather, and I thank you for that. Okay, so for our listeners, because we've got Carly and Cece on the show and because we do a critique of query letters on Books with Hooks and we talk so much about getting an agent, it's very easy for writers to fall into the trap of thinking there's only one route to publication. And that's definitely not true. Just because we have agents on the show and just because we're trying to help you sort of land an agent doesn't mean that that's the only journey to publication. And we're not just talking about self-publishing. There are lots of different ways to get published. And that's especially why I'm really excited to chat with Heather today, who had a very unorthodox journey to publication. So Heather, can you start at the beginning and take us through that? Sure. Yeah. So I started writing my first book, I think it was in 2018. And I just started writing before I knew anything about how to write a book. So I had been a lifelong reader, lover of books. So I thought I I know how to write one. So I just wrote and I went through the process of beta readers and then started querying and I think I only queried 10 agents before I realized it was not ready. So can I stop you there? Just yep. because a lot of writers go, but how do I know if I'm ready? How do I know if I'm not ready? So I know you said you set it aside, but before we move on, what was it that said to you, you're not ready? Agents don't say this is crap. You're not ready. Was it just a case of you weren't getting requests? You weren't getting feedback. How did you know that? I think it was that I wasn't getting requests or feedback, but I hadn't sent that many queries, but I also, in the process, like when I start to query, I have to put my mind somewhere else. So I had started to dive into as many resources as I could find on writing and querying. And I think I realized early on that I hadn't followed any kind of structure. I hadn't studied plot or character arc or structure at all. So I kind of realized that what I had been querying was probably a big mess. So I set that one aside. And instead of setting it aside and continuing to work on it, when I'm querying, I also usually have this interest in starting the next thing. So at that point, I had started my second book. And this time around, I had read more about the craft of writing, how to structure a novel, backstories and character arcs and all of that. So when I queried my second novel, I had quite a few requests and even a, an R&R from a top agent, which was very exciting for me. But while I was querying that one, I had started writing Burlington. And so when my second book didn't land me an agent, I set that one aside. And I focused all my attention on Burlington and again, queried it. And this one had the most success. So I can't remember. I think it was over 20 full requests, another R&R. And eventually what I did was participated in PitMad, which is the Twitter pitch party or pitch event where you tweet about your book and agents and editors of small publishers usually participate. And if they like your tweet, then you can send them your material. So when I did that, my publisher, who eventually became my publisher, liked my tweet and requested the full and I sent it to her, and then she offered. 
Okay, so can I stop you there before we even move on? Because here's the thing. A lot of writers go, I don't know how to write a query letter. It's only one page. It's so difficult to do. And I'm with them on this. I find that I'd rather write an 80,000 word novel than a one page damn query letter. So how, Heather, do you encapsulate your book in a tweet? Do you still remember what that tweet was, what you said? Yeah. So I used to work in, in marketing, advertising and marketing. So I have, I was a copywriter. So I have a little bit of help knowing how to put things kind of short and snappy. And I also looked at a lot of examples of successful tweets during PitMad. So my tweet was recipe for a perfect wife meets big little eyes. When May moves to an affluent suburb with her family for the life she's always wanted, she finds herself slipping into a world of odd dinner parties, secrets, lies, and rumors of suicide. And then a mother goes missing. So that was the tweet that my editor liked and eventually worked out for me. I mean, that's incredible. And those comps were just so freaking perfect. And we hear, be careful, big little lies is too big or whatever. But having read the book, those are absolutely the perfect, perfect comps. So for our listeners out there, you've got to work on your elevator pitches. If somebody at a dinner party corners you and goes, oh, what do you do? And you go, I'm working on a book. And they go, what's it about? And you kind of just freeze up and you go, well, it's difficult to explain that's a problem. You need to be able to explain what your book's about in a short and sweet way that makes people go, oh, that's really cool. I want to read that. Yes, I agree. I find it really hard to do that. I am really awkward when somebody asks me what my book is about, but I realized I have to do that. I have to be able to do it, especially when I'm trying to gain the attention of like thousands of tweets on Twitter or through the query slush pile. Yeah, and generally the people ask you this when you've just popped something in your mouth. So you're busy chewing and then you're having to describe it. But at least on Twitter, that's not the case. Okay, so then Alex from Rising Action offered representation. Before that, can you take us through your query letter? Because I'm sure at that point you had a query letter, you were ready to go out to agents. So, And for our listeners, I always love hearing from debut authors in terms of what query letter gained attention for them. Can you share that with us? Yeah, yeah. And this, like I said, this query letter actually was pretty successful. I had quite a few full requests. And okay, so this is the one that I sent to Alex. So I used to personalize at the beginning, but this one wasn't personalized. So Burlington, 74,000 words, is a work of upmarket women's fiction in the vein of Recipe for a Perfect Wife and Little Fires Everywhere. Quitting her job and moving to the suburbs with her family seemed like the perfect way for May Roberts to achieve the life she's always dreamed of. Yet, in affluent Burlington, Vermont, May isn't sure she'll fit in amongst the beautiful and rich mothers at her daughter's school. Then she meets Evelyn and Leah, two of the women in the River Park Moms clique. When they ask her to be a part of their unofficial neighborhood watch to keep an eye on fellow mothers at the school, May is intrigued. She both wants to be accepted by them and feels as if something isn't quite right. As May slips more and more into their world, she finds herself surrounded by odd dinner parties, secrets and lies, and even rumors of missing women. When one of the River Park moms disappears and nobody knows what has happened to her, or seems to care, May no longer thinks all is well in Burlington and must decide what's more important, fitting in or uncovering the truth. I'm a member of the Women's Fiction Writers Association, a former copywriter and now editor of a website, a mother of three daughters, and I live just outside of Toronto, Ontario. I'm currently working on my next novel. 
thank you for your consideration and I look forward to hearing from you. Amazing. Yeah, that's a damn good query letter. I can see why you were having success with that. Just as someone from Toronto, was this originally supposed to be Burlington, Ontario, and you guys changed it to Burlington, Vermont? So it has the American appeal or or was it always going to be Burlington, Vermont? Yeah, that was interesting. And I get a lot of questions from people because I live in Burlington, Ontario. So what happened was I was looking at where to set it. And I don't have any issue with setting it in in Canada, but I thought, I wonder if there's somewhere close by to where I live so that I would get like the seasons right and everything. And I started searching around on a map and saw that Burlington, Vermont was actually very close to where I live. And then I looked up the cities of Burlington and actually found out there was about 30 in North America. Between Canada and the US, there's about 30 cities called Burlington. And I started to see it as kind of a metaphor because a lot of the themes I explore about belonging and friendship, motherhood, I think they're universal things that a lot of people feel. And I think the way May feels when she's around these other women, I think happens to a lot of women wherever they live. So I thought Burlington could be any one of these 30 Burlingtons. So it could be in the US, it could be in Canada, it happens everywhere. And that's how it ended up in Vermont, which has caused quite a bit of confusion around where I live. And I imagine some people in Burlington, Vermont, have been like, how dare you portray our our place like this? They actually have, yes. There was (laughs) one review that, and I try to not read too many reviews, but one review was, I live in Burlington and this isn't it. Yeah, but listen, you can have two people living in the exact same place at the exact same time, having two totally, totally different experiences. And what I love what you said earlier was it's about that personal universal element, right? Or the universal personal element is that it doesn't kind of matter where this book takes place. Because while I was reading this, I was having flashbacks to certain neighborhoods in South Africa 10 years ago where this story could in fact have taken place. So I think for a lot of women reading it, they can relate to this thing of having to keep up with the shiny woman. I think at one point you describe someone's skin as being so shiny, it almost looked metallic. And I absolutely love that metaphor because I have stood in rooms before with these kinds of women and they just make you feel so tiny by the sheer act of their presence and their existence. You're like, oh my God, I'm standing next to these people who are so damn perfect. And here I am with sauce dribbled down my front and lipstick smeared on my teeth. So a lot to relate to there. Yeah. And I actually, I love that you said that because through the process of not revisions, but beta reading, someone had once flagged, I think that to say, this seems a little odd that you're comparing to metal. And I really wanted to keep it in because it was sort of like, I'm trying to say it's almost not realistic. There's no way you can be as perfect as these women. So I'm really glad you love that. I did because metal doesn't have pores, you know, you think about it. Like some of us, our skin's really porous and we fight a battle with it every day. And metal just doesn't have pores. It's so sleek. It's so shiny. For me, that like created just the perfect image. And I think this for our listeners is another takeaway in terms of beta readers because I'm always saying you must get beta readers you must get other people to read your work because it's so important to see if 
things are landing where you want them to? Are you leading people astray when you want them to? Are the red herrings working? What emotion are you evoking in them? How do they feel at certain points? But having said that, there are times that beta readers might be wrong. They might say something like, oh, I don't like this metal analogy, perhaps take it out. And then there are times where you as the writer need to dig in your heels and go, nope, this is right. Maybe you're not getting it. Maybe I need to tweak it slightly so you get it a little bit more. But it's not to say that every time a beta reader says take something out or it's not working is that you should listen to it. So how's that process worked out for you, Heather? How do you know when to listen to your beta readers? How do you know when to listen to yourself? I have found that I think with Burlington in particular, I had a lot of beta readers and I think I maybe had a little too many. I, I think I sent it out to too many people. And since then, I've formed a couple of really close groups of beta readers. And one of them, my group was matched up by uh, you during the great beta reader matchup. And what I find now is that they know my style of writing and they understand what I'm trying to do. And if they then have patterns in what they're saying, then I know, okay, something is not quite working here, needs to be tweaked. If there are one-off comments and I think, oh, I never thought of that and, and I, I agree with that, then I, I consider exploring it. But if there are one-off comments and I'm just like not so sure about it, I've learned now that I, I think I can let it sit for a while and see what I think. It's taken a while though to get to that point because at first I was very eager to just incorporate most feedback and I realized that can, that can really not work in your favor. Yeah, I've been there too. They say you can't please everyone all the time. It's certainly true when it comes to writing. In my own work, when I've tried to address every single point of every single beta reader, you start to lose the vision of the work and it becomes a hodgepodge kind of mess of everyone else's input. So yeah, and during these beta reader matchups and things like that, you're not going to gel with everyone. Not everyone is going to see your vision. Not everyone's going to get you in the same way that when your work goes out, not every reader is going to like your book. There are some readers who are going to rave about it and yell about it from the rooftops because it resonated so much. And there are going to be some readers who are like, this is the biggest sort of crap I have ever read. There's actually a brilliant account on Instagram. It's called Goodreads underscore reviews. And it's saying curating the most ridiculous one-star reviews from Goodreads. And it is hilarious. There are books on there that I have thought are the best books I've ever read. I cry at night into my pillow because I will never be as good a writer as these writers are. And there's always someone out there who is like one star. This was the biggest out of crap I've ever read. I will never get this time back. Yeah. For me, that author is Celesting and Britt Bennett. They're writing Oh, I would read everything they wrote. And it's so beautiful. And I remember seeing a one star or, or low star review saying that Celesting was not a good writer. And I was like, Oh, okay, come on now. Like, okay, if this person can say that, then maybe I can stop believing all the reviews that I'm reading about myself. Yeah, it kind of does free you up because okay, well, if my favorite authors are getting trashed like this, then it's not so bad if I get a little bit trashed. So for those of you who need a confidence booster, go on to Goodreads, find your favorite book, your favorite author and go to the one star reviews and see how subjective this all is. So in terms of your approach to this book, 
There are many different approaches you could have taken, Heather. You could have given us multi-POV because we've got a lot of different women in this town. You could have given us first person for May. Instead, you went with third person for her, really third person close. Can you tell us a bit about how you approached your choice around POV? Because it always needs to be so intentional. Yeah, well, I knew that multi-POV is tough. And my second book that I wrote, actually, I wrote in multi POV. And I knew it's a tough thing to do. And then after taking more writing courses and learning more about it, I I realized just how challenging it can be to do multi POV right. And in the case of Burlington, I really wanted to just tell May's story. And I really wanted to explore from her point of view. But when I write It just naturally comes out in third person. I've actually never been able to write in first person. So for me, third person feels comfortable and it feels like the best way to tell a story. And yeah, in this case, I really, I really did just want to explore May's story. Also, in terms of the plot, it was really smart because we were with May trying to figure out who was the good person, who was the bad person, whose intentions were X and Y. And the minute you put us in those protagonists' heads, then we have access to all this information that May doesn't have access to, which could then become a tension leak. So it was really smart to keep us close to May so that when she was wondering, is this one the goodie, is this one the baddie, what's this one's motives, etc., we weren't getting other information. We were kind of feeling claustrophobically in May's head to that point where anxiety and paranoia start to take over. And you're like, I don't even know if I can trust myself at this point. So it worked really, really well in that regard as well. Thank you. Okay. So something that I'd also like to chat about, because this is something a lot of debut authors don't talk about a lot. And I know that when I was debuting, and even since it's not something that I've spoken about a lot, because you spend so much time desperately wanting to become published that at each step of the way you are focusing at the next goalposts and you are going, if I just get there, I'll be happy and everything will be wonderful. And I actually saw, I don't know if it was a tweet or an Instagram the other day and I forget to who to credit it to. So if you're the person who did this, please let me know and I will credit you. As I said, I don't know who needs to hear this, but getting published is not going to make you any thinner, any more beautiful it's not going to solve your problems. And they went through this whole list of things. And it's it's so, so true because we tend to think once I'm published, that's going to be the big thing and that's going to be amazing. And something that Courtney Mom discussed in her book about publishing before and after the book deal is how there's kind of this crash after getting published for the first time because you build up all of these expectations and maybe not all of them come true. And also how draining it kind of is as you build up to debut, because you are having to do so much. You're having to market yourself without driving your friends and family crazy. You're having to promote yourself. It's it's just a lot. Can you speak a bit about your experience of that? Yeah. So I find it funny because you can look like you have this, you have achieved everything and you should be extremely happy and you are happy, but there's still naturally these little like insecurities that go through your mind. Like for example, so I went straight to the publisher and I don't have an agent, so I can't help but think, oh my goodness, like what's going to happen next? Because now I don't have an agent. And so I made it this one time, but am I going to make it again? And And then I was chatting with a friend about 
when your book comes out and, and everything that happens afterwards. And uh, someone mentioned there's just an, also an overanalyzation of, of your book. And I thought that was so bang on because it's yours for so long. And you get feedback from beta readers and agents and editors and that kind of thing. But when you let it go and then reviewers start chiming in and, I don't know, giving details about little parts of the story that you never even intended a certain way, it's just sort of it's surprising and not, not what you expect. And it takes a little bit of adjustment to get used to it. Yeah, especially when you get tagged in bad reviews. It's like, for goodness sake, trash me if you must, but please don't tag me on the trash party. And something else for me was when people would contact me and go, I ran into X, Y, and Z bookstore on the day of the launch, but they don't even stock it. And you kind of have this thought that if your book's going to get published, it's going to be available everywhere. But you start to realize that bookstores have got limited shelf space. They only stock the books that they are 100% sure are going to sell. So there are a lot of these expectations that you don't think about beforehand as you're kind of building up to it and there is this constant anxiety but bouncing off of something you said you're doing really great without an agent because you've sold another two books to another publisher haven't you so can you take us through that yeah so the second book I wrote I had shelved it did well but I shelved it and then when I saw that there was a new publisher that had just opened up it's called Storm Publishing and they were run by the same people who launched Bookature. And they were very successful with Bookature and sold it to Hachette UK and then got back into publishing and started up this new publishing company. So I thought, well, I have this manuscript that I had shelved and I'm going to send it to them. And so I sent it to them and then they accepted it and they also wanted me to write another book as well. So along the way, I had never actually thought that I should stop and see if I could get an agent because I had my goal had always been to get my books into the hands of readers. And the end result of going straight to the publisher was still getting my book in the hands of readers. But now all along I've I've seen that it would be great to have a partner in your career who's on your side and who champions for you. And I always thought that was going to be the route I took and it was the route I had wanted to take. But then, as you mentioned, you get to certain points and your goal kind of changes a little. And when I got to the point of I had been offered a deal from a publisher, I thought, well, this isn't the route I thought it was going to take, but this is going to achieve what I want. So, yeah, I've, I've gone in a sort of convoluted way and it worked out for me. I still think there are so many good benefits to having an agent as your partner in your business and in your career. But that's not the way it worked for me so far. Yeah, and I love hearing about all these different paths to publication. It's not just there's only one way. And if you don't, can't get in that way, you don't get in at all. My advice is just always have somebody check out your contracts. As someone who does not read the fine print, I'm terrible. I never read the fine print, etc. And there are so many times that CC as my agent or my previous agent caught things that I wasn't even aware of that might be a problem. And that's kind of where the expertise comes in. Do you have someone in your life who's really good at contracts who was able to look at that? Are you really good at contracts? How did you manage that side of it? Yeah, I wouldn't say that I'm naturally very good at contract. I had to have someone else look at it for me. And I have, I, well, first I always send it to my husband because he's got that brain. And then also 
have someone else review it. But yeah, that that is another side that I can see that if you have an agent, you just feel 100% confident that you're taken care of. Yeah, I have to have other people take a look for me. You know what, even that isn't true, because there are agents out there who are not necessarily brilliant at contracts, and who perhaps aren't being mentored enough to know what they're doing with contracts. So at the end of the day, that isn't 100% true. For me, I just trust sort of CC implicitly to do that kind of stuff, because she was a practicing lawyer. Right. And so she's, she brings that to it. But for many of you out there, in the same way that in this book that Heather has written, she made it very clear that as wives, as women, they shouldn't just hand over financial control to their husbands and go, well, he's good with the money and then have no idea about what's happening financially. In the same way as authors, we need to hold the reins. It is our career. It's our livelihood. And so it is important whether you have an agent or not to pay attention to those kinds of things. Heather, we're now at the end of our time. I don't know how that happened. Do you have any advice for writers who are in the trenches? You've just come out of this on the other side, having published your debut. Any nuggets of wisdom you have for them? I know they've probably heard this, but it is the best advice I received. And that is just to stay persistent and keep going. And it's so hard. And I felt that I had over, I think, over 200 rejections by the time I had written the three books and finally got a deal. And so I I know how hard it is. But I think the fact that I kept working on that next one, and then refusing to give up was the reason why I eventually made it. So I think the keep going is so tough when it's really hard, but it is the best advice that I've received. I love that combination, though, because it's not just persistence, for persistence sake, because I know some writers who will write a book, get 200 rejections, do no work to fix the book and just keep sending it out. So it needs to be that constant elevating yourself, learning your craft, keep writing, keep improving, keep getting better and keep persisting. That is the magic recipe. Heather, congratulations on the debut. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. For our listeners, we will be linking to it and we look forward to having you back to discuss the next one. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been really great. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, 
formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.